Finding your way to a balanced way of living is the key to health and happiness. Each week on Choosing the Balanced Life with Diabetes, you'll hear tips and tools for a happier and healthier life. Here's your host, Anita Westlake. So to pick up where we left off in our last um, episode, we have Dr. John Puthalil to talk about insulin resistance and what does this mean and his new revolutionary theory on diabetes and why so many people are getting it, how we can prevent it, how we can lower our medications and perhaps even reverse it. So thank you so much for joining me once again, Dr. John. Thank you, Anita, for having me again on your show. And I also thank the listeners of Choosing the Balanced Life with Diabetes. Anita, do you want to recap what we said last time, or do you want me to do that? I I would love, that's what we're just getting into. We're going to recap where we have left off and talk about insulin resistance. And we're going to go over once again, what does it mean? Why are they using this term? And when you dug deeper into this uh, question, how you have reframed this and come up with your new theory. Thank you for asking that because I often wondered why the experts still persist on the insulin resistance theory as the cause of type 2 diabetes. Because I have been researching when uh, the insulin resistance theory, when I found out that I can explain the elevation of blood sugar, which is the basis of diagnosis of type 2 diabetes without invoking insulin resistance. So I went back and first asked the question, what does insulin do? And as we discussed earlier, insulin cannot force any cell to accept glucose. All insulin can do is ring the bell or or call the receptor on the cell wall and the cell has to send a transporter to the cell wall to accept the glucose. In other words, the cell has complete control over how much glucose it needs for its own function, primarily to produce energy. So if if the cell has enough fuel, then the cell may not need any more glucose. That being the case, I looked at the three primary sites. The experts say a person become resistant to insulin when the uh, type two diagnosis is uh, type two diabetes is diagnosed. The, those sites are muscles, liver, and fat cells. Okay, look at look. Let us look at muscles. Muscles can take in glucose without any help from insulin when muscles are active and muscle cells are warm. They send in glucose transporters to the cell wall or keep up an opening there to accept glucose and insulin need not be there. And if you think about it, most of our physical activities happen not soon after a meal when insulin level is high, but in between meals when insulin level is traditionally low. So muscles cannot depend on insulin to bring glucose inside. 
they simply send more transporters to the cell wall to accept whatever glucose is outside and bring them in and use them. So, when does the muscle become resistant or not accept glucose? That is strictly when the muscles are at rest. So, when they say a muscle is insulin resistant, I'm still having a lot of trouble understanding what that means. Now, let us look at the liver. The liver, they say, is insulin resistant because the liver is releasing glucose even when insulin is present. Yes, ordinarily, when insulin is outside, the liver cells should not release any glucose. The liver can hold 120 grams of glucose. On the other hand, the glucose can get into the liver cells at any time. It does not need the help of insulin. Just like glucose can get into the brain cells or neurons without the help of insulin, it can also get into liver cells without any help from insulin. But glucose will not be released from insulin when, uh, from the liver when insulin is outside. It is true, even when insulin level is high in people with diabetes, glucose is released. So the question is, is it a sign of insulin resistance or is it due to some other reason. Primarily, there is too much glucose that liver cannot hold on to it. Now, the, an interesting side story is, in order to produce fat called triglyceride in the liver, insulin is the instigator or stimulator of that process. And anybody with type 2 diabetes, you can see their triglyceride or fat in the blood level keep going up. So, without insulin, they, will, they should not be able to produce as much fat. As you see in people with type 1 diabetic, diabetes, they are traditionally lean because their fat production capability is reduced due to lack of insulin. So, on the one hand, if the, if the liver is resistant, how can they keep producing triglyceride so that is the, the mystery to me. Now, the, the third side... Yes, go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to interrupt you for a second. That is very in, that is very interesting because there is a lot of stigma around if you're, the fact that if you're diabetic, you're very thin. <clears throat> On one hand, type 1, right. and if you're mm -hmm. type 2, that you're traditionally supposed to be overweight. And so maybe right. that's where the, the doctors are getting some of that, and of course it filters out in bits and pieces through the media and um, to the public. So maybe there is a little bit something to this um, uh, you know, theory that type 1 diabetics are traditionally thinner and type 2 are overweight. But I have not heard it explained in that way. So I, I just wanted to note that I found that very interesting. Yes, th these are the things that uh, the doctors themselves have trouble um, uh, explaining to patients. On the one hand, they say they, you are resistant to insulin. On the other hand, they themselves may not know what that means and how can the liver keep producing fat when... Insulin is, is, a, is the stimulator of fat production 
in the liver and by the way that fat is being produced from excess glucose for long for the purpose of long term storage because the liver can hold on to only 120 grams of glucose for short term storage as a complex carbohydrate called glycogen now coming back to the getting back to our uh, concept of insulin resistance the third site is the fat cell and in the fat cell the evidence they show is not related to glucose as in the case of muscles not accepting glucose and liver releasing too much glucose in the fat cell the evidence is the fat cells release fatty acids from inside when insulin is normally present fatty acids should not come out of the fat cell but there are plenty of fatty acids in the blood of people with type 2 diabetes and they say well that is evidence that fat cells are resisting insulin and still releasing fatty acids to me the very fact that the fat cells are getting fuller and fuller that they are uh, accepting fatty acids to produce fat, uh, uh, fat inside and store it in other words if you see people who are taking insulin most of them will tell you they are beginning to gain weight if they are beginning to gain weight that is mostly fat that means the fat cells are accepting and storing fat if fat cells are completely full what are they supposed to do they won't have any room for fatty acids or fat and that could very well be the reason that they are releasing insulin this is like telling somebody who just had a meal you bring them more food and they refuse to eat and telling them oh you are assisting feeding it does not make sense to me so this is why i say if muscles can use a different fuel such as fatty acids which they are programmed to do the glucose level will stay high in the blood because you are taking in too much glucose primarily in the form of grain and grain based products and this is happening all over the world now may i continue with the same just make a few more points on this anida so just to recap um what you're saying is you to prevent diabetes and reading your book <clears throat> pardon me and looking at your theory there are some things that we should be taking note in just the prevention of diabetes and you have seen evidence that you know medications can be lower adopting your theory and using your practice and also in reversing and showing no signs of diabetes which you pointed out and gave a lovely story in our previous episode that that is correct so everybody who has type 2 diabetes has to think about at least these few points that i would like to make one three sites become insulin resistant out of 200 different cell types who picks these three sites how do these three sites coordinate to become resistant at the same time not weeks apart or months apart or years apart almost at the same time especially as in the case of a lady who become 
gestational, uh, who is diagnosed with gestational diabetes. Within a matter of weeks, all these th three sites have to become resistant. Now, what is the reason for each site to become resistant? Is it the same? What is the mechanism? Because one has to resist glucose, the other is releasing glucose, the other is releasing fatty acid. So the mechanisms have to be different. And, so, and lastly, the degree of resistance, does it change over a course of time or even in decades? I don't know. These are the questions you have to ask your healthcare doctor and ask them, and then you will know the real story of type 2 diabetes. And in your theory, uh, and we've covered, you know, this is our, our third episode about your book, Eat, You Live, and you have a theory, as you say, that goes part and parcel, that the fell sats become too full, and that in emptying out our fat cells, this can help us prevent, lower medication, and perhaps even reverse type 2 diabetes. That is correct. But you've also um, pointed out that in this way of eating and keeping all this done, and we've talked about this, this could very well help type 1 diabetics like myself lower their medication intake. If you are not consuming a lot of carbohydrate, which is digested and absorbed into the body as glucose. You, you don't need insulin to regulate the entry of glucose into the cell. So yes, you need certain amount of insulin, but you can reduce the need or the quantity of it as you reduce the amount of glucose you absorb into the body. Now, I was really thinking about all this the other night, and I, I thought to myself, again, I'm a type 1 diabetic, but I look at overall health. So, inevitably, I'm lowering my um, intake of insulin by doing this, but in, in keeping the fat cells lean and using our authentic weight, which we will get into, and in keeping that authentic weight, there's always cravings, there's always battle when it comes to weight and food consumption. And we're going to talk about that. And I thought, no matter what, whether you're type 1 or type 2, this is great because it really is about overall health and understanding how the body works in this way. Because so many people, as we know, struggle with food, whether we're overweight or whether we're not overweight, however it shows up doesn't always mean that we're eating in a healthy way. And understanding this, I think, is very powerful. That is correct. So when we get the, into the lower, sorry, getting into the emptying of the fat cells now and finding our authentic weight, because we did touch on that in the last um, episode where we said, you know, some people, or sorry, not some people, but everyone has really their authentic weight, where they feel comfortable where they're their healthiest, and we're not all cookie cutters. So I'm very, very curious and would really like to pick up on this point on how do we identify what our authentic weight is? Well, let me start with this question. Each cell in the body is an individual living unit, and the requirements, nutrient requirements of each cell is different. How does a cell get these nutrients into the body? Because after all, body weight is an accumulation of weights of different body parts, different organs, muscles, bone, and fat. 
the muscles bone and fat contribute the most but every other organ contributes so what how do the cells maintain their capabilities and get the nutrients what they need for example if bone cells need to manufacture bones they need calcium if red cells in order to carry oxygen red cells need to have hemoglobin that requires iron thyroid to produce a hormone needs iodine so each cell has to know what nutrient it needs inside and then get it from outside the cell so after we eat the nutrients are absorbed into the body it is in the blood from the blood it leaks out into the fluid around each and every cell in the body it is this fluid outside it is called the extra cellular fluid that should contain each and every nutrient every cell in the body needs and those nutrients then have to have identification with the cell wall receptor whereby the cell can identify yes the need a nutrient is outside and the cell lets it in so dr day clara davis about 70 years ago asked the question can a child an infant a toddler regulate his or her own nutrient intake without any help from an adult because at that time pediatricians were telling the parents how much to feed a child how often to feed and what kind of foods to give and dr davis from her own observation found out the children don't always follow what the parents are trying to do yet they are growing normally by eating what they want to do so she took 15 infants 6 to 11 months of age who have never been exposed to any solid foods in other words until that time they have had only milk or formula she put them in in an environment in the hospital where they stayed for anywhere from 6 months to 6 years four infants were underweight and five had rickets that's a bone deformity due to inadequate vitamin d or calcium she prepared 34 different food items of animal and plant origin thought to contain all necessary proteins carbohydrates and fat for healthy growth vitamins minerals were also part of that as the natural as natural uh, as present in these plants and uh, animal products a complete list of that is in my book eat you live for those who are interested some foods were raw some foods were cooked but none had any seasoning salt milk and water were served in separate dish, dishes on a tray along with foods 
and infants were in charge they have to point or try to eat in any way possible they could use their hands or the spoon provided when they try the nurse will help them by taking the food in a spoon and putting it in the mouth of the child if only if child if the child opens the mouth if the child does not open the mouth that food is not forced into the child all children had regular physical examination blood test urine examination and x-ray they were observed for any changes in their appetite any distress of stomach upset and their stools were examined for any for uh, uh, any other indigestion and all infants managed their own diet very well they had good appetite they were excited about seeing the food tray and they ate for about 15 to 20 minutes at a time and the doctors tried to anticipate or predict what foods could uh, the child will prefer and they could not their food choices were random and very peculiar yet they recognized the foods they desired very promptly regardless of which part of the tray the dish was placed they tasted some foods and spat it out if they did not like it and they never tried that again and they developed specific appetites very soon and all diets were unique taste changed quantities changed sometimes they drink 11 ounces of milk some days they may drink 48 ounces there was no way of predicting now they ate salt which was separate not used in the cooking they ate salt occasionally voluntarily after often with sputterings and choking and crying but never spitting it out and sometimes they went back for more salt now sometimes they may eat one type of food over and over to a large quantities that was astonishingly large for the observers and then suddenly the quantity will go down to the minimum the average daily calorie intake equaled what was predicted for each child now remember i told you there were five with rickets I, i was just going to ask about that how did these children fare out given that they had a particular let's say um issue that should be that taken is, care of that is the most interesting part for me and i'll tell you why in a minute after i tell you what happened she dr davis had provided uh milk which contain a, a, a one food product with cod uh, liver oil in it and she also put pure cod liver oil in a container on a tray and one child who had rickets with bone deformity he voluntarily drank 178 total cc's of 
pure cod liver oil. That's awful tasting, though. That is not a, 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 I would say, a yummy thing to gravitate towards. And he actually drank that much of it. Over a, over a period of days. And then, most importantly, he stopped drinking it when his x-rays showed the bones are healing. Now, in order for that to happen, that ch child's brains need to know, one, what nutrient is missing in the body to cause the bone damage or deformity. Second, what is the source of food on the tray that will provide that particular nutrient? And third, how much is needed? Because once the bones start healing, he stops drinking cod liver oil. And if you have that kind of brain, how, what help can you get from somebody outside to tell you how many servings of fruits or vegetables or meat you should eat? Or what's, how much of the plate should be covered with whole grain or vegetables or fruits? How can anybody else know? Or why do you care if your, if your own brain has that kind of capability? Well, all they did was they provided the actual food because obviously the toddlers couldn't go get the food themselves, but they provided proper food for them. They weren't giving them things like cupcakes and, uh, you know, candy as choices. They were giving them real food. Right. And then the toddlers, they provided that, but then the toddlers, their brains in their bodies, they knew what they needed in quantity and food choices and ate accordingly. That is correct. So it has to be natural, it has to be a variety, and then the body can take care of it. Now that's fascinating. And they were, they were toddlers, so up until that point they had had no solids. It was all pretty much, when I say no solids, they had, from what I'm understanding, some cereals, pablums. Uh, they had, until that, until that time, they had only milk or formula, that's all. And this is the choices they made. So this is very fascinating. And why aren't we doing that? I don't think we're doing that enough as adults. No, no. We, we are even, well, we are not doing it as adults because as children, we are not exposed to enough natural foods or variety of them. For, because of convenience, we are told to believe that what is produced and available in the supermarket will provide all we need. So that is the problem. And just as a final thought, these children all were examined by a pediatrician and the pediatrician certified they are a fine group of healthy, happy children. So the, you can ask the question, yes, this was done 70 years ago and this was done in children, is it applicable to adults? Because do the mechanisms of regulation change as we get older? And my answer is, I don't think the mechanisms of regulation of food or water intake change because our breathing patterns don't change as we grow as adults. Our water intake does not change or the regulation does not change as we are adults. So I see no reason to suspect 
that as adults we have a different mechanism of regulation what i am suspecting is as you just pointed out we are not paying attention to what our brain knows and i think a lot of people um misidentify their cravings <clears throat> so we why we crave something or we continue to crave we don't feel satisfied is perhaps that we are not getting the nutrient that the body needs that is from the foods that you have been taking that particular nutrient the body has identified as lacking inside is also lacking in the food that you have been consuming yes so independently just to recap because this part i find fascinating um along with cravings and we'll get into our authentic weight but the cells are all independent and they know what they need each cell is independent in knowing what it needs and allowing what comes into that cell that is correct so when Now, people take well i just just mm -hmm. wanted to finish the thought when go, people go um take supplements let's just say in, in the area of supplements you will hear well don't take too many supplements because you could overdo it and then it, then it could become toxic in your body where you hear other supplements well go ahead and take it because whatever the body doesn't need or use will be flushed out and this obviously is where it's coming from so in other words take a supplement well we just blindly take supplements without any measurement we you know we have to be careful because the cells will only accept what they need and we have no real measurement other than what our bodies might be craving on what the cells will accept because each cell is independent and when it's full it's full that that is true and both of those comments that the body will flush out what it does not need and yes you can take supplements both are correct except they are correct for different types of nutrients for example vitamins can be classified into water soluble vitamins and fat associated vitamins vitamin a d e and k are examples of fat associated vitamins if you take too much of those in the form of supplements once they are absorbed into the body there is no outlet for them because once it is associated with fat your body cannot excrete fat from the body so they accumulate and accumulate inside whereas water soluble vitamins like such as vitamin b complex and c can be flushed out of the body through urine so both uh, parties are correct on the one hand you have a problem of accumulation on the other hand you can flush it out but it depends on the type of vitamin that you are talking about just because we hear so much of that it's the in explaining how the cells are independent when they become full and they don't have to accept anymore it it was part and parcel to me in talking about fat same with supplements so really you have to remember when the cell is full it's full as a matter of it's a vitamin right. a nutrient fat and now we're talking about sugar all of it when the, when the cell is full it's full when the cell does not need any more it is not going to accept no matter how much of it is outside the cell wall it has no reason to and it is not programmed to accept any more because there is no room inside and in fact it can interfere with other normal maintenance 
and production activities inside the cell, and the cell is very protective of that. So, no matter what, in talking about um, how much fat gets into the cell, and in your theory, this explains a lot. Whether you're type one or two, for myself, for type one, I'm finding this very useful, actually, and knowing this information, just in overall health and how the body works, and appreciating that because. In a lot of training, and, and doctors don't have time, and the professionals just don't have time, let's face it, to explain all of this and how it all interrelates. What they'll explain to you, and they do the same with type 2 diabetes also, is that you have sugar, how are we going to manage it and use it and not have it in the blood? Period. Start, end. Because that's a little section. But in understanding all this, it's like putting together the puzzle of health it makes far more sense instead of just understanding little bits and pieces that affect us, such as diabetes. This makes far more sense to me on overall health and how we can help ourselves, whether diabetic or not, in managing our health. Because it's, diabetes is number one. If you have it, you want to manage it. You want to take care of it. Yes, we have to get it under control. But understanding the body and how it works can help us go far further in our management in a successful way. Well, it not only has management of diabetes, if you want to prevent it, you, can, you have to stay away from the activities that led you to become a diabetic. In other words, you need to have a change in your behavior. It, you cannot just go back, well, once your, my blood sugar is con- under control, once my weight is down, I will go back and start eating the way I was doing before because now I'm good. That will lead you right back to where you left off or what happened to you in causing diabetes. So you need to know how does the brain take care of itself? How does the brain know what nutrients your cells need? And how does the brain know when you have taken in enough nutrients? Anita, may I touch on this subject now? And this is to do with cravings. Is this? Uh, this I is to do with how does the body acquire nutrients normally? What what made these children aware of the nutrient need? How does the brain work? Absolutely. I'd like to know how adults how we're losing touch with this and why because this is so fascinating that the children knew so early on that the pro- good food was provided, and they just knew what they needed. So how does this work? If you think about it, we are spending nutrients. We are producing energy every minute of our, whether we are awake or sleeping, every minute of our life, we are spending, utilizing nutrients, spending energy. Yet, we don't feel hungry all the time. So our signal to take in nutrients The sensation of hunger is periodic, and you cannot even predict. In each person, it can be different. So for that to happen, the brain has to have an accumulation of signals of nutrient deficiency from different parts of the body. And when it reaches a threshold level, the brain says, okay, feed me because I need some nutrients. And I will tell you which foods contain the nutrients based on my previous experience. 
So how does the brain know the current level of nutrients? What I am suggesting is the brain is monitoring the nutrients in the fluid outside the cells and the receptors to monitor that are present primarily on the taste buds, on the tongue and the fluid underneath that the taste buds cells are located. Those fluid, the taste bud receptors can monitor. Your saliva contains some of the nutrients and when you swallow the saliva, the air coming up from the lungs when you exhale picks up volatile components and present it to the smell receptors and they are monitoring the concentration which which nutrient which volatile nutrient is da going down then from different parts of the body like the liver the fat cell the kidney they are monitoring different aspects of the nutrients in the body. For example, the kidneys can inform the brain how much water has been filtered, whether the concentration of uh, uh, solids in the urine or solutes, they call it, going up because there is less water, meaning that the body may need more water. So all this information is processed by the brain and then brain creates the sensation of hunger. Now, how does the body know you have consumed enough? How does your brain know? There again, the brain can detect nutrients, not food groups. And how does it detect nutrients? Each nutrient has a new, unique physical uh, composition. Now, you can give your fingerprints to a database and the computer can identify exactly who you are because every person has a unique fingerprint. Similarly, each nutrient has a unique configuration. The receptors on the taste buds, the receptors on the smell uh, sensors can identify and inform the brain this is the particular nutrient that is going down. So. The most important thing is when you are eating a meal, eat things that you can chew because that is the rate of release, that is how you control the rate of release of nutrients so that these receptors can identify and inform the brain. It is similar to when a baby is nursing the rate of release of milk to the, into the baby's mouth is a, a, a flow rate that the baby can use to identify the nutrients in that milk through the receptors on the baby's tongue and smell receptors. That is how the baby decides how much milk is enough at that particular feeding. Similarly, if you chew and concentrate on the enjoyment part, your brain will tell you when you had enough. You will not feel full. In fact, if you feel full during a meal, that means you are depending on the volume capacity of the stomach. 
And if we are going to discuss why people overeat, I will come to that again later. But right now, the brain will tell you when you had enough, and the brain will create the sensation of satisfaction by reducing the intensity of taste of that particular nutrient. Now, you don't have to eat each nutrient independently. As long as you chew, as long as the nutrient is in the food, and as long as the nutrient can be registered with the receptor, the brain will know. So one thing is you have to keep the receptors clean. So you may have to take a sip of water, preferably warm water, because it can clean the receptors better. And also the warmth of the air in the mouth, the warm air will waft up the back of the throat into the nose and clean the smell receptors. So you can enjoy the next bite even better. And that is how your brain will let you know. But, but what about soup? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but when you said I'm really listening and I'm hearing about chewing, and right. I understand that and we should chew our, our food well because, again, right. we want it to get, you know, it helps the gut. And there's we, we've done other shows about how important it is to chew your food and leaky gut. and um, But I'm, I'm curious about soup because I get great satisfaction from um, certain soups and I actually crave them. So maybe it's the nutrients of the soup. I don't know. But in that way, would you say that that is something that the brain could identify nutrients in, even though we're not chewing it so much? There's some broths that I really find satisfying that I, I crave. Well, I can answer in two different ways. Can you think of a naturally occurring food that you can consume without chewing? A food, as in yes. a raw food. Uh, I'm yes, having any, a hard. Any naturally, any nat. Tell me one naturally occurring food that adult human beings consume without chewing. I'm, in other words, go ahead. In other words, soup is not a natural food or that consistency. Everything we have teeth to chew food. Now that is one way of looking at it. Okay. The second is if when you were growing up, if your brain identified a particular nutrient in that form, that is how your body got it, then that brain will crave when it needs that particular nutrient, it will not look for the nutrient, it will look for the form in which it came in. For example, if during uh, early childhood you'd ate, uh, you drank a soda when you were thirsty. As you grow up, when you are thirsty, the body will not look for water. The body will give you a signal, you need soda. The same with breakfast. If you ate eggs in the morning, that is how you grew up. When you are hungry in the morning, the body is not looking for anything else but eggs. So it is it is based on what your brain is used to for that particular nutrient. Now, you can get away with it if you use a teaspoon, the smallest spoon you can get, and drink it slowly, consume it slowly. But my preference will be even soup. If we have solid 
parts in it and chew it or make it even putting some nuts in it for example make or even salads put some nuts so it will force you to chew that will be a better way than drinking it so to speak well even when i have miso and for some reason i was not brought up on miso soup but i do crave it so there is that, that something is a lentil. in it miso is a lentil so if you got Uh, that kind of lentil when you were growing up and that's that, what i, I could that be is craving your, yeah that that's the only explanation i can give you i may be i may not be exact in your case because there, i'm i am talking in general here so because i do know some people crave soups but maybe they were again brought up on them i know as a child we did eat, eat a lot of soup my parents liked them and they were um broth based heavily broth based mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. almost in lieu of um well i would say you know we didn't drink a lot of water at the meal it's not that we didn't drink right. a lot of water overall but at the meal rather than having some kind of soup and it may even been tomato soup or you know chicken soup but there wasn't always a lot in it because that was with the meal so we chewed with the actual meal but maybe had some broth on the side right Okay. So that yeah. could be why I'm craving that. But there again, yeah. if you were eating let's say a lot of sugar or as you said drank some soda as a young child, the brain's going to identify and call for it. So it starts right. from when you're a child and nutrients you're yeah. given. But on the other hand, I think that's a balance for a lot of people because that doesn't mean you have to force feed your child or or say gee you're not eating enough broccoli, but rather than have it available and have it there for them. so that they can pick and choose understanding they will eat what they need no child will go hungry if food is available in the house but it is a duty of the parents and caregivers to give a variety of foods to the child so the child can pick and choose what he or she needs the problems start by around age 6 or 7 when the child start listening to the parents until that time they are almost independent then the parents would say eat more because we won't we won't get to eat until we reach our destination when they are traveling or they will say if you eat this i'll give you a dessert or you are going to be a strong boy if you eat this so they gradually change the child's eating behavior disconnect its his natural control mechanisms and from then on uh you know then the peers take over then circumstances and many other external factors come into the picture rather than the internal cues so that could be a, a reason why a lot of people are having disconnect with their diets their food what they need knowing what nutrients they need and choices they make. Now what can we do if we're in this cycle? What is it well, that people can do to get reconnected with what they need or have a shift in the way they think and identify with food? The first thing they need to do is to identify or feel their authentic weight because everything is now weight based. What is your weight? If you go to any doctor they will check your weight and your height and your blood pressure now 
especially with people who have diabetes weight plays a key role and i'll say in preventing diabetes weight plays a key role not because weight gain leads to insulin resistance as the current theory holds but weight gain can fill up your fat cells that which can then spill fatty acids which muscles use for fuel even in lean people and leave the sugar in the blood so let us just take an example i had a patient who weighed 300 pounds and he had joint issues his family doctor told him well it has to be your weight you weigh 300 pounds a lot of people hear that i hear that all the time that um they have bad knees and they won't even operate on them until they lose weight because it looks like weight is the issue of their joint pain right then you look around there are some 300 pound people with no knee problems and some 100 people who weigh only 150 with knee problems so just because you have weight that does not mean the joint problem is because of the weight in other words like many other health issues weight you cannot automatically associate with health issues yes weight can be a problem but how does one know what is your personal normal weight for that let's go back and find out where did this weight table come from in 1943 metlife insurance company just for those that don't know it's an insurance right. company just for those that don't know metlife is a very large insurance company in order to write insurance policies asked the people who were applying for it to report self report their height their weight and from that collection of data they figured out what is the lowest mortality rate corresponding to the weight of each person and that is how the weight tables came about then later on we found out there is no firm linkage between weight and mortality so in 1985 the national institutes of aging in baltimore maryland produced a table of healthy weights for adults of all ages the problem with that was the range of what is considered normal was very broad for each person with a particular height for example if you are 5 foot 5 inches your range is 115 to 149 so how do you know whether the lower end is optimum for you or the higher end because i have seen people who are within that range pre diabetic and they lose 15 pounds from 135 to 120 and their blood sugar got normal but he was told that he was normal weight according to the weight table so we cannot rely on the weight table then there is body mass index 
that is to adjust for the height of the body if you are taller you are expected to weigh more so there is a formula a mathematical formula to compensate for that but the bmi as it is called the body mass index will not take into consideration the fat mass versus muscle mass if you are a muscular person you may weigh much more your body mass index may be very high but you are maybe as healthy as can be so none of these will be applicable when it comes to an individual the best thing is what you feel as you mentioned anita earlier when you gain weight you know you intuitively that this is not right you need to lose that weight i don't even have and, to step on a scale to be honest personally right. i i know well, we know by our clothes don't we but i can tell yeah. when i started to if you know and i don't vary my weight all that much but i i know when i've started to gain weight and i i don't feel as well and it doesn't take a lot and it could be just another 5 pounds on me and i don't feel well i know that i have to take, remove that weight from my body and that i'm not feeling well and some people think i'm i'm vain or i'm silly by 5 pounds but for myself personally it makes a big difference the leaner you are even 2 3 4 5 pounds will make you feel uncomfortable but that many people who are heavier they don't understand that because they feel oh you look so thin you you cannot be but what happens is our weight gain is so slow maybe 1 or 2 pounds per year it could be stress it could be aging it could be uh, increased intake less activity whatever it is you will rationalize and say well this is something so small i can take it off any time when but over the years it just adds up so that is when the problems start so if you want to avoid complications of type 2 diabetes or diabetes itself you need to get in touch with your own authentic weight and what one thing i i say in my book is mid 20s whatever you weighed at that time is an approximation of what your authentic weight should be the reason being by age mid 20s you have reached the height the maximum height you are going to reach and your bone density is also maximum so that is one way to correlate with your authentic weight if you don't know that or if you had health issues at that time the next best will be what is your weight corresponding to normal blood sugar and normal triglyceride levels or normal fat and normal blood sugar because if you think about it it is not how much you weigh that is going to give you the trouble but how much of that weight is staying in your blood as sugar or fat again how much of your weight is in the blood floating as sugar or fat that is the key to your health so really even if you had because people have more health issues than just diabetes they they could have health issues and develop diabetes so you're saying where your health is the best regulated 
is where your what that weight is at that time where your health is best regulated is what your authentic weight is. I, I'm sorry, I did not. So if get you, all of it. I, I'm I'm a little confused in because we are talking about sugar, and you're saying so it makes sense in the in overall for diabetes that wherever your blood sugars and your triglycerides are managed at their best could be your authentic weight. But what if there's other issues? Because people just don't have type 2 diabetes. They might have had heart issues first and then become diabetic type 2. So is it really just, let's say, your overall health, where it is best managed, that weight could be your authentic weight? If the blood sugar is normal, if the triglyceride level is normal, as far as weight is concerned, that is a close approximation of your authentic weight. Yes. And you can manage that. You know, see, so many people struggle with this. Weight is such a huge topic. And when it comes to health, beyond health, there's vanity, of course. But it's such a huge topic, and it's a big mystery on where we should be. And a lot of people go, again, to the index on where, you know, what is a normal weight for your age and height and and all that kind of thing. But also, we look to the TV, and if you want to be a supermodel or you want to be, you know, a fellow that's very muscular and lean, we go to that as a measurement also. And so finding our healthy weight is a struggle for, I think, everyone. Unfortunately, we've run out of time this week, but we are going to pick it up next week where Dr. John will join us again. And we're going to talk about healthy weight. How do we find that? How do we battle some of our cravings and understand why we may be overeating? And remember, before making any changes drastically in your diet or doing anything with your medications, please consult your health professional. If you have any questions about today's podcast, please email me, Anita at AnitaCoach.ca and follow me on Twitter at Anita Westlake.